listeners and welcome to the Unions 21 podcast with me Simon Sapper and me Becky Wright the director of Unions 21. You're very welcome I hope you are well out there in listener land. This podcast is going to be primarily about how unions do digital uh, and we've got a, we've got some good interviews uh, coming up later on with people who really are the experts in this field. And before we get going with a roundup of the latest news from the trade union movement, we've got to say a big thank you to Pellacraft, who are the sponsors of this particular episode of the podcast. www.pellacraft.com is their website, and if you need any promotional goods or things to make sure your message gets across more effectively then then do visit them or give them a call they'll be very pleased to hear from you they made us some fantastic pens for conference and bags as well and bags as well i was going to say they made some bags as well so we can we can testify to the quality of the product listener so needless to say that their financial support does not mean that they have any editorial control over what we're about to say which is probably just as well given, <laughs> given how scurrilous we can be sometimes <laughs> uh, Becky, uh, anything in particular caught your eye from the news over the last uh, the last week or so, union-wise? So for me, it's union-adjacent, I would say. It's been the allegations and the revelations around Harvey Weinstein and his uh, conduct after the past 30 years. Yeah, I mean, oh, man, sick-making, really. Well, I mean, I don't quite know where to start with the general kind of feeling sick about it just being really angry about it and and just how um how much it's it's resonated with me the importance of a strong collective voice in the workplace and a strong union organization and coupled with that the importance of women to be involved in their unions and to to form unions and to fight for them and the importance of women being in trade unions and that's not to say that we have women have allies within the trade union movement but just the importance of women being involved and giving voice to their struggle is just really really important and I wanted to kind of highlight a few things specifically that's just been in my head the first one is when the guy made his first public um, uh, pronouncements over all of this and said I grew up in the 60s and 70s and that was the workplace culture then and I just literally felt like well do you know what I've worked with with men who grew up in the 60s and 70s workplace culture and quite frankly they wouldn't get away with doing some of the stuff that he he did because time moves on and we move on and as a union movement we don't put up with that rubbish Uh, and the second thing I was thinking was just how important this has been for there to be the initial women who came out and the leadership that they that they demonstrated and the bravery they demonstrated by coming out against a powerful um, person, a powerful employer mm. within their industry, to how they spoke truth to power, and the fact that from there on in, women came out together and and formed a collective voice around this. This is at least how I've seen it, and. When people have said, oh, well, why didn't they come out first and say this at the time? And I, I keep thinking of all those workplaces that I've been to, that I'm sure you've been to as well, Simon, where the, the, the idea of putting your head above a parapet oh, is, it's, is it's... scary. And you go into non-unionised workplaces, you even go into some unionised workplaces and you're trying to say to people, make this an issue, talk about this issue... And they are frightened about what it's going to mean for them, for their families, for their work. And they don't, they don't often want to do it. Well, it's an abuse of power, isn't it? It's a classic yeah. bullying tactic, isn't it? Yeah. To isolate, disempower, 
belittle, marginalise, and and you know you have you know you have the you have your insides sucked out of you almost by that by that process, and it and it, it is I I. I, I you know, when all the news came out, I spoke to some of my female friends, uh, you know, who are sort of my age, grew up in the 60s and 70s, started working in the late 70s, 70s and 80s. And, and, and I said, God, how awful this was. And they gave me a look, you know, which, <laughs> you know, which, which, was, which was, you know... Where was, were you? Kind of where, well, it really, it really was. And yeah, you yeah. kind of, you know, you reflect back and, and just, oh, I mean, you know, life's a learning curve, you know, but... <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but I mean but I mean yeah, absolutely the, the the strength and the, the re empowerment or the empowerment of women by by by, by facing this down yeah. and by speaking about it is it has to be admired and, and recognised. Yeah, and and absolutely, and and just how we I think in the union movement can be really proud of the role that women have played in fighting for equal rights, fighting for equality, as you know. Um, throughout our history and our struggle, you can kind of see that. Um, but but just how how it's underestimated that power of a collective voice. Even now, you know, you read books about you know how how you can work in the workplace and be a woman and how you can do that. And it's always about the individual. It's always about how you can get ahead or how about you can do this. And actually, it fundamentally, kind of ignores the fact that women are often best served when they work together. <laughs> Just like any worker is well, best served when they work together, it, with it, you know, when you have uh, it in that kind of employer-employee worker dynamic. But so, I mean, he, 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 you know, here we are, all those years after the Equal Pay Act, all those years after the Sex Discrimination Act, and uh, and so on, and there is still an absolute need for the collective trade union agenda to address gender politics. Yeah. Without, without, without question, there's a need for it to address all sorts of other things as, uh, 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 as well, but that, yeah. that shouldn't be forgotten. And, and I, I wonder if, as a result of what's happened, suddenly the profile, if you like, of gen- gender politics will rise when you, look at, when you look at what unions are doing, you look at their websites and so on. I mean, I, ho- I certainly, certainly hope so. Yeah. I certainly hope so. Yeah, but I, I mean, and I just think, you know, what, how important it is for us to have strong unions in our workplace and for, in that particular industry, for there to be strong creative unions and, and how we support unions who are in those industries and how we support unions who are now finding themselves in conditions which those unions have been in for a very long time. It's just, to me, it just really kind of got me thinking of all of those things and there's been a decade-long uh, hashtag campaign called me too where women have been encouraged to talk about um sexual harassment in the workplace and uh, I, and it's just been bringing uh, in the last week or so it's just caught fire again and just sad to, to see all these sorts of things and i think if you ever kind of wanted to talk about well why do we still need when, it, why why do we still have this kind of need for gender politics? And I think you just have to see that that hashtag to, to to really understand why, because this is something that is not going away anytime soon. I I agree, I agree. And, and there, there's there's a bridge, and I don't mean to 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 make light of this. It was a very serious issue, but 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 I wanted to, to the thing that caught my eye in the in the news was was some really good smart campaigning by Balfour, the airline pilots association. And the bridge yeah. is that during the terrible storms on the tail of. Hurricane Ophelia that hit Ireland uh, just recently in the, in the last couple of days. There was footage, you may have seen it on social media, of a plane trying to land, eventually landing at Dublin Airport, being buffeted all, all over the place. And there was, a, there was a report 
from someone who was on the plane who, who said it was a really terrible landing. It was really awful. We thought the plane was going to go over. And then when, when we touched that, when we touched down, we all gave a round of applause to the pilot. And do you know what? The pilot was a woman. You know. <laughs> <laughs> oh my! What a shock! <laughs> it was just so anyway. But but Balper, uh, Balper. I mean, you know, hats off to to, to to Balper. I mean, running a really good, smart campaign to get the Monarch pilots uh, other jobs, following yeah. the collapse of that company, and really not letting Ryanair off the hook um, in terms of in terms of the the wish of Ryanair pilots across Europe to have some sort of collective voice and, oh, and better terms and con- term, terms and conditions. So I, I you know and, and and there's been some very smart smart coverage there. So who can't so. have loved all of that going on? If you remember all of those attempts to get unionisation in in Ryanair oh. and EasyJet and how hard that has been for the, for those unions. I mean, I just I just constantly smiled every time I heard that on the news and cackled well, which if you know me know that happens quite a lot but admittedly like I do have a particular laugh for the down for the kind of shock <laughs> well I mean I just I just I just think you know Ryanair are in, are in you know, kind of like in terrible difficulties at the moment haven't they their, their, business, their business strategy is, is, is kind of is kind of in the toilet bowl and someone's about to flush the chain sort of sort of thing but but if only the management had picked up the phone and spoken to the union, there may well have been a more collective solution or intention approach to all these things. Can you imagine actually involving the workforce in the Shock horror, blimey. Shock horror, Shock horror but, And I've loved it as well from a geek point of view because I think that it's really demonstrated um, just how we can uh, use our industrial power when we... And the conditions are right. Well, well, abs- absolutely. And I mean, you talk, you talk about using industrial power. We can't not mention the CWU's phenomenal ballot result for industrial action in Royal Mail in defence, principally of, 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 the pe- of, the, of the pension scheme. Smash the fifty percent threshold out out the window. Kind of virtually, I think, a ten to one majority in favour. Eighty nine percent vote in favour in favour uh, of industrial action. Okay, the courts have injuncted them. There's a procedural issue that needs to go through. But any employer that has 100,000 people, say, more than 100,000 people, on such a high turnout saying, we're really unhappy, you've got to negotiate. You can't do it through the courts. You've got to negotiate. And I just I love the way that the CW's messages about mm. the profit Royal Mail are making and the, the, the perks and the, the remuneration for the senior managers. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're, they're in the mainstream now. And I also love, and I've got to say this, is okay. when the ballot result was announced, when the ballot result was announced, it was a young member of the union who fronted up the press conference. And that's kind of putting your money where your mouth is, I think. I think that was great. I had my fingers crossed. I was hoping that Simon was going to say the thing that really tickled my fancy, which was they got Postman Pat involved in that as well. Postman Pat's a good union member. Postman Pat's a great union member who has been trodden on by various different changes to the employment thing. Anybody wants to know what I'm talking about, please look at our publication, Building Tomorrow's Unions. I have a, th- I have a, a, a an obsession with how Postman Pat is the sign of our workforce times uh, and one of my um, old organising academy students actually sent me a video from the CWU of Postman Pat doing a dance because he was happy with the result and I just was like that has made my day but I, I think this is the thing isn't it the, the, the law is put in place what do we do well, it is what it is for this time being, and we want to get rid of it. We know that, but we have to. We're in those constraints, so let's you know pull out all the stops and get those returns. And and you know the raw CWU and the 
through this raw male um, strike ballot has shown absolutely that it can can be done and how much it's engaged the workforce around that I think it's absolutely fantastic and to get a young worker to do the press conference it does really you know it's good stuff yeah so so I mean talking to engagement I suppose I mean we could you know there are other things as well I mean uh, prospects join the union week trialing three three membership for three months put my teeth in three membership (laughs) for three months if you join prospect in the week that's just come to an end so if you're listening to this I'm afraid you've probably missed the boat on that one but that's that's an interesting tactic I mean that you know the whole concept of free membership you know, is you know, the jury still out on that? I'd be really interested to, to hear from colleagues in Prospect whether or not that's that's yielded the result they want. Yeah. But in terms of engagement, the main focus for this podcast is how unions do digital data, digital and, and that's all about a form of engagement, isn't it? Yeah. So let's uh, dial it back a little bit um, to say that the the trade union movement's use of digital platforms is actually not new. I mean, I remember becoming an officer many many moons ago now in the early 2000s um and actually being allowed by the union that i worked at the time to just write a website for our young workers but there's like they just literally handed me the keys to the uh, cms and said go ahead and write your website can i just also say that i have zero coding skills so it was all just a complete and utter mishmash but the 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 then web content editor manager was super keen on doing it and so you know supported me throughout that uh i've seen throughout the years predominantly in the states unions use websites and email facilities to organize and to uh, really engage workers and i have to say that i've often thought in the past that we've not done it in the same kind of way or to the same extent that the the other uh, unions across the pond and out in Australia and uh, even over in, in the rest of Europe have done. But, you know, there's a lot of talk about digital. There's a lot of talk about how far we're behind, how far we, how, you know, how much we need to go forward. And at Unions 21, we thought, well, actually, well, where are we now when it comes to our digital use? It's all very well me giving you anecdotes from... 17 years ago of what I was able to do but actually where are unions now and what are the challenges going to be for unions going forward because sometimes I think it's very hard to get to a particular place if you don't even know where you are in the first instance so this is a kind of the the research we asked Nick Anstead from the uh, London School of Economics to undertake was a kind of an overarching view of where unions are now digitally and some of the challenges they're going to find going forward that's right. Well, let, let's hear from Nick. And I, I just have to presage this this uh, interview that we did with, with Nick by saying you will rarely hear anyone so happy at their work as Nick <laughs> in, in this interview. Right. OK, so, so Nick, what was the objective of the research that, that you were doing about unions' use of digital data? So uh, I think the thing that really interests me as a researcher is how do institutions adapt to change? How do they integrate that into what they already do? How does that challenge what they already do and 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 also how in particular does the cultures within those institutions uh raise opportunities and challenges when there are new ways of doing things because as a union as a movement we're notoriously conservative with a small c aren't we so well i i i I wouldn't i wouldn't want to say that necessarily but i think clearly any organization is going to have 
uh, face challenges with adapting to something as radically different as the communication environment we find ourselves in today. You know, if you think just how recently some of the uh, sites that we are now very familiar with, we use every day, were created, sites like uh, YouTube and Facebook, some of these uh, companies are less than 10, 15 years old, and yet they're already incredibly dominant in how we communicate with each other. And so this is a very rapid pace of change. And I do think one thing that's particular about the trade union movement that's worth thinking about is what are the social conditions that actually constructed it in the first place? And and certainly the history of the British trade union movement is that it's a product of industrialization. It's a product of a very particular mode of economy that existed at that time. And obviously we know our economy is very different today. Sure. OK, so, I mean... Where do, where do you start? I mean, and what were the main? I mean, what were the main kind of peculiar or particular challenges that you had to grapple with to to get this into some shape and shape and order? Uh, so the method we employed in this research um, was uh, particularly in depth interviewing. In other words, we actually went and spoke to the people whose jobs it was to use this technology and to find ways of making it work, both in terms of making it work within the organisation they work for, but also making it work for the members and their supporters. And so by talking to them in this in-depth way, we got a really good insight both into the opportunities they had to use this and the things they felt that worked really well, but also into the challenges they faced on a day-to-day basis in terms of arguing for using this technology, arguing for investment in it, and also finding a space to experiment. Because I think part of the challenge here is we don't really know what works. Uh, What we know is that there are these different techniques out there but they can be used in all kinds of different ways but also i think there's there's a a degree of false optimism sometimes about about digital data that's great you can send out an email which stops you having to make a phone call so you have to go to visit the member or visit the branch but but it's not a magic bullet we this is something we recognize from different spaces of research right we we, we recognize it in government we recognize it in uh, political parties we even recognize it in academia where people talk a lot about the power of technology to communicate with people and develop new ways of teaching um and and so it's not surprising that unions share these discourses and in fact what i'd say is there are two really really strong discourses out there um the first one is the kind of aggressively optimistic one that technology is going to fix everything it's going to make it easier it's going to make it cheaper it's going to make it more efficient uh, it's going to make it more democratic. Um, the other one is, is the sort of aggressively negative view as well, that this technology is potentially really damaging. It undermines the work of unions. Uh, it maybe leads to the potential emergence of rival organisations or it leads to new types of industries that are not really... Uh, within the reach of traditional trade unions. Now, actually, what I would suggest is there's truth in all these both positive and negative discourses, but they can both happen at the same time. Wow. And there's going wow, to be an okay. interaction between the two of them as well. Wow. So I, I, I've got in my mind that the phrase that a glass is half full, a glass is half empty. Here's the glass is full to overflowing or there's barely a dribble in it. And somewhere there's got to be a, a way to, to get all the, the learning points and the constructive energy out of that. No, I think that's exactly right. And so the question is, how do we, uh, as organisations, think about those potentials and those possibilities and find a way of managing them that doesn't either descend into this sort of um, very 
over-the-top optimism, which you know can lead to, for example, bad investment decisions where a lot of money is thrown after these technologies, but maybe necessarily without a very productive uh, goal in mind. Or, but simultaneously, the kind of inertia you might get if you become very negative about it. So, as as you as you sort of ploughed through this, this <laughs> you know, this unkempt landscape uh, with peaks and troughs and all the rest of it, and um, were, were, were some thing were, were some clear points starting to emerge? Were there any particular takeaways? Yeah, I think a few things really struck me as I spoke to uh, these people I think, uh, who work in unions doing these these things. So one big issue that I think is very challenging, and I think this is particularly, I guess, relevant for Unions 21 um, in terms of smaller trade unions, is what do you do as the techniques required to deploy these digital technologies uh, become more specialist? And... and where do you actually house that expertise? Mm. So, you know, if we think particular about... Well, I think for one thing, a lot of people tend to think at this moment about digital as being about content. So it's about putting podcasts online or it's about putting videos online or sharing content on social media. But but actually, of course, it might also be about the data backbone. So it might be about yes. targeting, segmenting. But that sort of analytics and data management is actually really technically demanding. You need a very particular set of skills. You need to be able to code, for example. You need to be able to handle that sort of data set. And, and, and so something we found is often in smaller unions, digital was kind of a part of a sort of a, a laundry basket of different things people had in their responsibility, and 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 clearly, however hard working they are, they may not necessarily might not necessarily have those specialist skills I'm kind of talking about now. So, what do small organisations do to ensure they can take advantage of those opportunities? Do they use consultants? Do they pull their resources? Do they hire in house? I think they're quite interesting questions about structures. Um, I, I suppose there were sort of a other things that, that that came out of our research as well, and I was I was very struck um, talking to digital specialists about the the way in which what they did was managed, um, and very often they were sort of managed by non specialists in this area, and and that creates sort of some interesting challenges in terms of uh, convincing people about mm-hmm. the value of these these uh, techniques and, or, and investing or, in them. Or alternatively, the, the managers having an over-optimistic and inaccurate view about the potential of, of the investment. Yeah. yeah, and of course that's because obviously, you know, one of the interesting things about, and something really positive that came out that people liked about digital um, was it's very measurable. So in other words, you can say, oh yes, this is happening, this has been retweeted or shared or we've reached this many people or we've gained this many donations or, or something of that kind. Um, but obviously, um, having metrics can also lead to quite a target-driven culture. And if those targets are wildly optimistic, then that's never going to be a useful uh, place for an organisation to be. Yes, indeed. Yeah, no, I, I can... Wow. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 my, my track record is to push the envelope on, on, on digital. I recognise the limitations, but equally I'm very keen and curious about, about both content and, stru- and structure. So I, I would describe myself as getting it. Mm. But equally, I imagine there are people who don't get it at all. And those challenges, those questions are key to developing an understanding and efficient use of resources by unions. So what would you say is the next step in terms of, in terms of your research or in research in this area? Um, well, I think what we have now is an insight into internal cultures. I mean, what I would also say is I think uh, it, it, it's only a window into those cultures. I think we could go further. 
I think we could talk to more people. I think we could broaden the number of organisations to get an insight into what's happening in different places. One thing that was really striking was even in the the group we spoke to was diversity of experience. And so obviously broadening that sample still further will give us uh, different insights. I think the other thing that, that would interest me as a researcher is very much thinking about um, lots the, the other things that are going on that are less obvious. So um, there's a, a, an academic at Oxford, um, a chap called Rasmus Kleist Nelson, who's written some really amazing stuff on American campaigns, uh, political campaigns. But what he talks about are mundane technologies. In other words, he you know the sort of one of the arguments he uses is. Well, imagine a modern political campaign without email, right? Email is not sexy. It is not the the, the sort of zeitgeist of communication. Quite, quite the converse, but, actually. But, yes, but, <laughs> but profoundly has changed the nature of the way organisations work. And, and so I suppose the interesting question is, well, what about these other things that are less obvious? In fact, so much less obvious, they're almost completely ingrained in terms of our day-to-day practices. And to try to understand that on a much more subtle level and how it runs through an organization i would also highlight one other challenge that came out of this research which i think is a really profoundly interesting ones for trade unions because i think it gets to the the heart of what they are and how they work and i think it but i think it also raises questions about this and we saw a lot of debate about this in the interviews which is who is defined as the audience for these digital campaigning and communication methods so traditionally unions have had a very strong sense of the membership being the audience and others people who pay their dues and are members um that one of the benefits of online is you can reach out beyond this group but then the question is well what do you give people beyond this group do you do you give them information do you give them advice or do you actually restrict that in some way to people who are still your members uh, put it behind a password protected wall for example so I, I think this is a really interesting question because it really strikes at the fundamental nature of how we define a union do we have to think about the boundaries between uh, membership and non-membership and what services are being provided for each group absolutely the 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 dilemma the challenge the balance of servicing versus organization is always with us just like taxes and death and stuff like that nick thanks ever so much for, for talking to us and and we look forward to keeping track and, and keeping in touch as the research goes forward my pleasure thank you well becky i think we've now actually got the report haven't we that we have was referring to i mean what, he he has drawn out some of the, the things that he found while he was researching it but what are the main findings of note so um what nick made the conclusions that you'll be able to read in a bit more detail in the report is that essentially there's going to be these five challenges for unions kind of going forward the size of a union and their increasing specialization uh the resource allocation and developing new capabilities the institutional versus online that kind of tension mm, that mm. he was talking about hierarchy versus organic and the, the idea of kind of you know general secretary tweeting versus kind of grassroots uh, getting involved and kind of the the audiences and i mean i just wanted to pick up a few things that i think um nick mentioned in the interview there's a few things that we would be interested in and i think there is if we think about union capacity and the internal makings and of, of unions which is the how are unions whether they are large or whether they are small going to cope with the the new types of jobs 
that are going to be needed to do some of this work and how are they going to integrate into the system and structure and you know not just thinking about oh somebody can take a nice snap and therefore that's some digital content but like literally how do you uh how are we going to start employing people who really think about mainframes and well it's a kind of digital first almost approach isn't it uh, and we'll hear about that uh, from uh, from Andrew Andrew Pakes of Prospect a little later in this podcast. But you're, that is a, a, an absolutely dead centre issue. Isn't yeah, it? absolutely. And actually, I think every union is going to have to start thinking about that. Whether they're small, whether they're big, like actually, how are they going to start using technology to make them more efficient in certain areas, and but also to just reflect going onto the audience stuff, go to reflect their workforce. And, what, and the re- industries that they want to um, organise in. It's still quite um, shocking for me to some extent that we're not thinking about always, you know, well, hang on, my member works in this industry and they tend to look at these different websites and they're, they're used to this particular type of experience. So why aren't we mimicking them? Well, the answer is because we produce the union magazine and we send it, we home mail it, and because it's a union magazine, people will read it. Of course, where have you been? <laughs> I, lo- I love, I love, a good union magazine. Let, let's not. Uh, <laughs> how? It, yeah, but and that's the thing, isn't it? It's like actually thinking about. I know Antonia Vance from the TUC has spoken about, you know, her particular engagement with digital platforms and how are we not thinking about it. Yeah, you know, and a bit more of a customer sort of service focused right. approach. That's uh, right. Union unions approach to digital should be the same as banks she says doesn't she should yeah. be, you know that you, the sort of service you get from your bank on you know on your smartphone should be what you get from your union and you can absolutely see her point and you can see her point i would argue actually there's a, an element of well what other aspects to your members what other types of digital platforms do your members use regularly if they are in particular industries, they will be used to doing things in a certain way in some instances. And it's not kind of rocket science, is it? You, you go to where people are rather than where you want them to be, you know. And I'd also say that the obsession with digital is, is right in terms of us starting to move forward. But what we can't lose sight of is the fact that the digital are the tools. And there is work that we've historically done that we haven't used digital for because historically we didn't have it but the the ideas and the approaches are the same it's just we're using different types of technology to do it but now. also there's a kind of law of unintended consequences and, and that is if you from the from a, say the center of a trade union get information out very personalized mm. very quick very very tailored the people who get that information are going to think that that's the standard that applies. And if they respond as quickly as you've sent information out, yeah. you, you know, you, 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 you risk being swamped, if you like, by too much information. It's not a magic bullet. It's, there is no such thing as a magic bullet. We all, know, we all know that, despite the fact that we all still keep looking for it in a slightly delusional fashion. Uh, but I think, you know, the example that we've got coming up now from Prospects is a really good one in terms of unions starting to think about how they move forward on this. It is, it is really. So, so let, let's hear from, as I said, from Andrew Pakes, who's the, the head of comms and media and engagement and organising and, organizing and things at, 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 at Prospect. And, and, and listen, see, see how many of the things he talks about either you or your union are doing already or would like to do. 
Okay, so um, your uh, prospects at the moment, I know, is already quite far down the track in terms of digital comms. You've got you're one of the first unions to have an app, for example. Um, you've got a union a union week this week that we're talking. Lots of emphasis yeah. mm-hmm. on social media to get the message out. But you're recruiting. Seem to be in the middle of recruiting a whole kind of social media team around you, Andrew. What's the rationale behind that? Yeah, thank you, Simon. We're in the second half of quite a radical shake-up of how we do communication as a union. The start was our communications review and my post being created in uh, the beginning of this year, and now we're just filling in some of the other posts. For, you know, our, our, you know, our principles behind our change around is that uh, we've always had a good communications team in Prospect. We've always had uh, really high-quality written materials, produced great magazines, and we've got things out the door on time and to a quality that members should expect. What we haven't done is had a communications team that has always been chasing with members' expectations. So the whole shake-up we're doing now is moving from a, a traditional print communications model to a digital-first approach. And that means having the skills and the staff in place so that we can be much more engaging in how we work with our members and support our overall objectives in terms of recruitment. So, But how do you know that is actually in line with what your members want? Uh, we've surveyed them. We've asked them in our uh, in our member survey. We ask uh, respondents: uh, Do they read our magazines? Do they open our magazines? What products do they value? How would they like to engage with the information with us? We've got a, a you know a strong feedback from our members that uh, whilst they recognise Profile, our, our, our flagship magazine, is of high quality, uh, only a small number of them actually open it and remember the information that's in it. Similarly, we've just done a. a, a a survey of around a thousand of our reps out there in workplaces, our key frontline lay officials, to ask them about how we support them in their daily work representing members and supporting members. And what's come back is that the traditional magazine approach of sending them some information five times a year doesn't keep up with the daily pressures they have uh, in terms of knowing what's going on in our legal best practice, what campaigns we're running, finding out and networking with other reps out there and actually using a digital platform, working better with Facebook and social media and setting up online forums is a much more responsive and dynamic way of helping our members feel part of the union family. I mean, that dynamism is, is a clear advantage over print media, right? I guess, and is, is this is this um, is this approach being cascaded out? So it's not just the national flagship publications, but it's the the, the sector based publications. If branches are big enough, they'll have their own internal branch comms working to this new model, this new template. Yeah, the reality is a lot of branches are already doing this. They're using email better uh, for some of our bigger branches or branches which are spread across different workplaces. They're already using intranets, uh, email communications, newsletters in, in new ways. So to some extent, it's finding out what's already happening out there and importing that from the branches back into head office. But your starting point was right. We've got to get a lot better in how we engage with members. We've got to, in my view, stop just benchmarking ourselves with what do unions do and actually think about a benchmark which says what is the best experience members have in terms of engagement and communications from any organisations they're members of. 
that is that. I mean, you are casting your net wide there. Uh, Absolutely, think, but it's yeah, what people expect. So. In any walk of life, members uh, through any other part of their lives have enormous choice over how they receive information and engage with it. They will be members of everything from the National Trust. Uh, through uh, prospect organised organisation, yes, or you know, or the brilliant work the co-ops doing in its revitalisation. So there's this, you know, this myriad of online and dynamic communication out there, which is already engaging with members in other parts of their lives. If we want to be relevant to them, it's you know, firstly we've got to have the issues in the local organisation, but secondly we've got to have the channels that allow them to see, almost in real time, and engage with that, what we're up to. All right, let me play devil's advocate just for a moment and say this, mm. is, this is actually not about engagement. This is about saving money. You just want to do away with the, with the magazine that, that, okay, not everyone likes it, but it's got some die-hard aficionados, and this is just, this is just a budget-cutting exercise. Uh, it's more about how do we use money wisely. You know, unions and membership organisations spend huge amounts of money on postage, on printing out publications... And the question to me is, what measurement do we have when we mail something out of our head office that a member uses it for the purpose in which it was intended? Does it spur them to recruit another co-worker into the union or to sign up or take action in terms of one of our big big campaigns? So, for instance, let me give you you an example. Having saved some money from postage by moving away from some of our print publications, we've reinvested that money uh, into some online lobbying software uh, we're already trialling. In the summer, we put out an email to our members in the public services about the public sector pay cap, asked them to lobby their MPs, a very traditional union Mm -hmm. demand. (laughs) In old prospect, that demand would have been a circular or memo sent out to branch reps then passed on to members that said here's a template letter type it out yourselves and send it off again new prospect with the investment in digital means that all they have to do is click the link put in their postcode it will bring up who their member of parliament is and allow them to see some model text but the evidence we've got from members is that they're actually adapting that to share their own personal stories around that we've already had over 3,000 members directly contact their MPs about their experience of what the pay cap and austerity means to them given that prospect membership is about 140,000 at the moment yeah we've got about 30,000 in public services so that's I mean that's a that's a a key a key measurable yeah Um, a couple of other questions though that come out from this sort of strategy is presumably by by directly contacting and engaging with, with, with individual members, mm-hmm. does that not jeopardise and undermine your branch structure? Absolutely not. It's all about complementary. We're you know we're learning how this fits together. You know one of the one of the big roles we're looking to fill at the moment is a new social media officer. Part of that role will be to help shape our voice. Uh, on social media directly as a union another part of it will be supporting our branches our activists our national executive so that they themselves can engage on it you know from our perspective social media using new forms of communication is about you know building the union family so it's a network of points engaging with members as opposed to just the voice the voice from head office okay so it's a higher level of literacy more uniformly spread i suppose yeah you know we want to you know What's the saying? Plant a thousand acorns and see what blooms. In, indeed. Oak trees, hopefully. Um, is there an issue about control, though, controlling the message? Because it's fine. I mean, this is clearly is not one-way traffic, nor would one want it to be if there's going to be proper engagement. But, but are there situations where, where actually there are some... Obviously, there's going to be debate, but kind of deliberately dissident, almost destructive voices that creep into the system 
what are the measures that you that the prospect can take to make sure that your your communications channels are not hijacked, if you like, by sectional interest? Yeah, I, you know, I think there's always a risk when you try something new that there could be situations you'd not thought of. I think the bigger risk for us is not being part of the conversation full stop. Yeah, if we don't engage with it, if we can't build that family of networks online where members, other people in our workplaces, other fellow travellers with our values can communicate with each other, then you know we're simply not in the same space as where our members are at. So there could be a situation where you know some people seek to hijack. I think you know almost crowdsourcing of you know enough of our members and activists and organisers onto social media will demonstrate that people can respond to questions quickly. We can be timely about that. You know, and if there are you know, instances where people want to get a bit fruity with their language, then we can police that through the collective in terms of yeah. sharing what the reality of the union experience is and not allowing individuals for whatever reason to hijack that. Have you encountered any um, any kind of roadblocks from employers, if you like, employers I, or people inadvertently because of the ease of access <coughs> responding to, to, to messages or, or participating in the, the prospect debate and the employer saying, you know, you're not you're abusing our systems here and coming down very heavy on people. No, we've not come across any of that. You know, obviously, each of our workplaces will be different in terms of the ability that members have to, you know, use social media on breaks or, you know, uh, at lunch times or after works. We're trying to, you know, put together an offer which means that whenever members or non-members, if they're looking for us, uh, want to engage, you know, whether that's in the morning before work or, you know, an hour when they're on their train home from work, there's a bit of space for that. So, you know, we don't want to be seen as the nine to five union. It's not about encouraging members to, you know, down tools uh, and suddenly start to pick up their phone <laughs> and interacting with us. But the options are there, you know, and that's part of why we developed the, the app for our magazine. Uh, so people can, you know, view it on their smartphone or iPhone or on their tablet. Uh, people can still opt into a hard copy. So it's not about saying we're taking it away from people, but we're trying to we're trying to encourage members to make an active choice about what's the easiest way for them to engage with it. You know, we're still developing that app, but people can now see our Twitter feed on it. It links through to you know bits of our website. You can do a click through to our Bet2 sector. Mm-hmm. to see the, you know, the wider prospect spectrum of our members there. Uh, it also allows us to begin to plot out metrics. We can see you know, how many people download the magazine, you know, what are the issues or articles they click on, what's more popular. You know, so we're setting ourselves up. You know, it's going to be a big challenge for us. It's a very different way of working. But you know, come back and talk to us this time next year and we'll be able to give you a printout of exactly what we've done uh, and what engagement we've had with that. That's very interesting. I mean, the way in which comms links into to management of the union's database in terms of the, mm. the membership database is really interesting yeah. uh, I mean mm. for example our, you know, our counterparts in the ATL section of the NEU are mm. doing some interesting work on that but presumably the, the two systems are able to talk to each other so it's not just a question of you from a comms perspective knowing that that article on page 5 was particularly popular yeah. in the online mm. e- edition it would be actually you in theory you could map across and know exactly who has looked at that and start to, to get better understanding of the needs of those members in a, in a much more individualised, you know, focused way. Yeah, I, that's the principle behind it. Uh, I'm not sure we are quite that finessed in 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 that's what you know the database. You're able to click on a member and see what they've read, but certainly it's about saying that everything we do from this point onwards 
members have to be the centre of that. And that's not just in our organising strategy and when we're in workplaces and running campaigns, but in terms of our IT and systems here, members have got to be much more central to that. And using technology to demonstrate how that works and being able to pull off metrics and data uh, means we can, you know, it's almost like real-time polling in terms Mm. of Mm -hmm. the kind of issues. We can test opinions. We can put out alerts and surveys. We can do a lot quicker testing of opinions and shaping of opinions which makes us sharper and I mean prospect one of the unique things about prospect is, is the range of occupational interests yeah. that are covered mm. by the union presumably I mean in theory digital media gives you much more flexibility to to provide material for those differentiated audiences is that is that what you found is happening have you a, a sort of standard offering that you can offer your you know your, your reps in the national trust which is kind of based on the same stuff that you offer your reps in the NFL or somewhere like that, but, but nevertheless has got enough kind of free space and flexibility to, to be tailored for those, those particular memberships. Uh, that's the ambition. We're still at early days in doing it, but you know, there's no reason why any of the communications that individual members receive uh, doesn't have that localization to their workplace or their issues, so it prioritises the issues that they're interested in rather than what we predict about them. What's interesting, though, in all this work is... Yep. There's a great appetite from members or branches and reps for information to be localised, you know, the front line of it to be issues that are relevant to the industrial sectors they're in. But there's equally a big desire to develop that common language across the union, particularly with the back 2 sector coming in, you know, that doesn't lose sight of the fact that we are, you know, stronger together, we're part of a collective organisation, you know, that despite that diversity of roles and professionalism that members have, there is some good central core trade union values at the heart of that. And then those shine out in those local communications and important to us as well. That's, uh, you, you, you threw away the invitation for us to come and talk to you next week. Was that, was that for real? Absolutely, you do. We'll, we, do come we'll, see us. Well, we, we will do that. And listeners, you've heard Andrew set the bar pretty high, so we'll see where the prospect live up to it. Andrew, thank you very much indeed for talking to us. Brilliant. Thanks, Simon. So, Becky, what do you make of that then? I mean, that's quite a comprehensive, ambitious work programme. It is. And, it, and what a change as well to, for a union to have to go through, to undertake, you know, as... Andrew said the, the union historically had a very um, strong print side or kind of wordsmithing going on. Well, I mean, I, you know, I mean, that was you know, prospects are not unique. but I do think you're right. There is a kind of cohort of unions that are probably ahead, slightly ahead, or you know, they're, they're probably the star bakers. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, well, I, you know, and this is, there's a couple of things you can put on here, which is that. There is the idea that, that unions uh, engage in digital and actually it requires different kinds of skills. And the trick for unions is going to be how do you have a kind of more traditional comms team and move them into one that's a bit more 21st century ready? How do you do that? Who does that? When does that happen? Those are all kind of really interesting questions. And they, I mean, I ju- you just have to take a look through all the job titles that they've gone through at Prospect now, and it's all like digital content creator and 
brand marketing person these are all kind of job titles which you would probably associate with some kind of hip trendy tech company or just a just a normal tech or company. just a normal or just you know what i mean but it's like um, we're in the middle of clerkenwell so the whole area around here is just full of like you know Th- you that can't, kind of you can't leave the building without tripping over a techie. I, you can't leave the building without tripping over somebody with a man bun. Um, and, and it's all those <laughs> types of jobs which are going to bring in different type of people. So to me, the interesting thing will be how does that these new, these new type of people come in and work with the industrial side and how do you kind of marry those two up? Well, yeah, I mean, but, uh, yes, but that presumes, uh, accurately, I think, in some cases, that, that, that actually the industrial side... The operational side, if you like, is lagging behind the comm side. But in some in some unions, of course, it will be the industrial side that's leading yeah. the the comm side. So it's it's it, there's some interesting, some really interesting kind of union governance, organising dynamic things. It, it's how there. it's how do you really manage the union effectively? Yeah. I think yeah. at the end of the day, how do you bring those two things together with a common shared purpose and understanding of their roles and how they all work together? to create a strong union and then that plays back into what Nick was telling us about there being a sort of bimodal distribution of people who really get it and people who really don't yeah and And the other thing that I uh, will need to kind of pick up from that was you you mentioned it Simon the idea of where are the branches in this and where are activists in this and how do they all fit in and so I know that you have unions like Unison which have a fantastic programme where they talk to branches uh, and train reps in how to use social media as part of their kind of day-to-day running of their branch which I think is really important and very necessary but the other thing of course with all of that is we know that unions work best when there's a rep in the workplace and people can identify and relate to their Indeed, to their rep sure. so what do you kind of you know and as you rightly pointed out people think oh email yay great and then actually they don't have any other engagement with their members at all other than just through a circular which is on email so the 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 trick or the kind of the thing that we'll have to still work on is how do you marry that strong workplace rep with digital forms of engagement um how do you maybe think about other types of i suppose what they call now influencers yeah. is the is yeah. the new technical term well i mean you know our reps have always been our influencers so how do we kind of maybe get new, uh, digital ones as well as our kind of workplace ones well lo- local structures local reps branch structure and all, all the rest of it this is a this is a huge area for all membership organizations yeah so you know if you've got ideas about how to how to fix them write them back on the back of a 20 pound note and send it to us please <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> no, but this, the, seriously, this is this is this is a this is a really it's a core issue, I, I think. And, and whatever, whether it's digital, whether it's analog, whatever the industrial sector, you know, the, the, these are the building blocks of the trade union structure. Yeah. And actually, kind of the mortar between them has fallen out, or the bricks are becoming a bit, you know, cracked or, or whatever. So we, the, yeah. it, it needs attention. I'm still looking forward to a union having its first chief technology officer. Whoa. I know a couple of unions have been in discussions on doing that kind of thing, but that's when I'm going to get really super excited. Indeed, but you know, you know what the issue there is? It's not the technology bit, it's the chief bit. <laughs> Should we move on? Let's, let's, let's. And, I mean, one, you know, you, you won't find any slowness in terms of being digital savvy with the sponsors 
of our podcast today. Just to remind you of Pellacraft, www.pellacraft.com for all your union promotional goods. Um, one area in which digital uh, working by unions is what has been well established for a long time, of course, has been education. Yes. Uh, and uh, a number of unions, I mean, most unions now have some digital content. Uh, it, probably a majority digital co- content mm. but um, we were talking before we, we started recording this weren't we, Becky about, about the RCM and the RCN midwives and, and nursing you know some, some years ago what was it nearly 10 years ago coming up presenting to, yeah, so, to a conference saying we're, go- we're going digital so and yeah exactly so I, I remember this uh, being I think we were at Congress House there was a Unions 21 conference I think I had just started organising archaeologists and there was a presentation from the Royal College of Midwives around I um, their learning platform and how they were using this this new digital world to teach people online, and it was so interesting to me as a geek uh, that I started using some of it to when I was organising the archaeologists because for those of you who don't know archaeologists are a very disparate bunch who could be all over the shop all over the place in small groups large groups you never know how you're going to get them and we sort of identified this as being a way in which we could engage people so I've always been really intrigued about how you use like digital platforms to teach and for people how they do that to learn and I think the RCM have really kind of built on the success of their platform and continue to take it from strength to strength well we're about to hear from Gail Johnson who is the RCM's sort of e-learning coordinator uh, and and what's interesting about what Gail's going to tell us about is is, is not just the the take-up that that the RCM have had but how they've worked in collaboration with the employer to almost to embed a digital culture uh, amongst their amongst their members and their reps um, so here she is um. So, go. What, what prompted the College of Midwives to develop e-learning to start with? Well, traditionally, the RCM has been involved in continued professional development for midwives from the very start, and all midwives used to have to attend a week-long refresher course. In the 1990s, that all changed, so access to, to CPD um, became much more self-directed, so midwives had to find... Uh, events to attend in their own time and often to pay for it uh, which they found difficult and costly and so we thought well, there's another way that we can actually access midwives to support them in their CPD and we looked at online learning we started seven years ago and it's going seven years ago and it's going really well and uh, of course in a, in a regulated o- occupation such as, such as mid- midwifery the obligation for CPD is, is absolute un- and unavoidable and there's a, presumably a common agenda with the employer as well to make mm. sure that it happens. Yeah. Um, nevertheless, did you find that, that actually there was a, a noticeable improvement, a noticeable improvement in take-up or in pass rates or, or, or just more energy around the, the membership because they, were, they had more flexibility to access the CPD? Well, we certainly asked our members what they think of um, RCM I Learn, and they do see it as a particular benefit. When we started, we, were, we had no idea how many midwives or, or support workers would take up the online learning, um, and we were looking at hundreds, and of course now we're in our thousands, and it's, it's marvellous. Absolutely. Is there, it, 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 has that acted as a springboard or a platform for, for the college to be able to develop online, online um, training and education for its trade union function as opposed to its professional and regulatory functions. Yeah, that was that was part of the commitment at the start was to support the, the workplace reps as well. 
So we do have um, work uh, modules which specifically support workplace reps, as well as professional development. So, and that's it. I mean, are there any downsides to this? I mean, it's, it, it just it sounds it sounds like because I, I, I can just imagine, especially in a, in a profession like like midwifery, where where actually you, you know you can't control when babies are going to be born or when mothers are going to get into difficulties or going to need these services. It, it, you know, it, and obviously resourcing is always an issue. So even if even if your line manager says, yeah, you can go on the training, your conscience might 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 play up. So. Are there any? I mean, what about um, one of the problems about about online training? I suppose can be that actually it's just you and and, and the laptop or, or, or the desktop or, or whatever, and you're not in a uh, you're not in an environment where you've got peer group support. Yeah. There, that that is an issue. But of course, what we're not doing is we're not covering absolutely everything midwives need to know. We we encourage reflective activities within the modules, and some of that is about. Um, going and talking to colleagues and finding out what's out there. So it's not so isolated. If we say, you know, what's happening at your, in your local area, so they do, we do encourage them to go and talk to others. But I think the biggest downside <coughs> is that we're saying to midwives, well, that here's these resources, and there's this uh, expectation that it's all done in their own time. And I think that's very difficult for lots of people. I would say conceptually it's quite difficult as well, especially on the trade union side. I found in my experience... Especially newer reps uh, will say, "Well, okay, I'm, I'm going to be a union rep, but what time do, you, do I get off work for, mm-hmm. for doing this?" And of course, that's you know that's a rarity yeah. these days, even in very heavily uh, unionised I- I- environments. How uh, are there any particular tactics or approaches that that, that you found that, that works in terms of overcoming that that particular challenge? Well, I think when where there's pre-course work before a face-to-face event, then of course there's deadlines to be met. Um, so we, we give information about when to, to access that and when to start. So there is some pressure put on them from that extent to actually complete something before a face-to-face event. But there's also the opportunities to think about how best do you study. Uh, and we even have a module on, on study skills, yeah. which makes mm. you stop you to think about, well, when is it right for me? Do I need to set aside time? Do I need to be uh, much more strict with my timings? To encourage them to be more independent around their learning. Well, absolutely. I mean, the, the skill of learning is a skill in in itself that doesn't come naturally necessarily to to, to everyone. Does in terms in terms of the products and the advantages and and, and perhaps some of the, the the successes, hidden successes of, of, of e learning and the use of the of digital technology in, in, in this way, are there any particular standards? I'm, I'm, what comes to my mind just in, in preparing for our discussion was was the cultural competence initiative, mm. joint initiative between the college and and, and the employer, the, the NHS. Broad, broadly speaking, which is which really changes parameters and and, and improves capacity in, ter- in the in the profession. Is it, or am I being too rosy-eyed about it? Well, well, no. I think the opportunities within online learning is that that you can access such a variety of things, which either whether it's clinically based or culturally based or behaviour based. So we've worked with lots of external agencies because there's lots of stuff that's out there which midwives and support workers might have had difficulty accessing, and, and we can be a conduit for, for access to much wider opportunities for learning. How, how is that controlled? If you, I mean, is there ever a time, for example, where the, the, the employer and the college might have different views, might be facing different ways about whether or not something should be done on the e-learning platform or done at all? And if so, how, how is that resolved? Well, well the... The learning sits with RCM, and if we think this is learning that's relevant for midwifery, then that's what we do. 
Um, so we will be supporting our members around em employment relations issues and we'll have learning around that. Um, in the same way that we support the Caring for You campaign. Now, you know, I think by asking to make sure that our midwives get uh, regular breaks isn't something that necessarily sits particularly well with a busy labour ward, for example. But that doesn't mean to say that we're not going to be doing it and saying it's not the right thing to do. Absolutely, absolutely. So, uh, where next then? For, I mean, it sounds like this, this has kind of ticked all, the, ticked all the boxes. I suppose, and you'll be quick to correct me if I'm wrong, that the, the, pressure, the college has the same kind of financial challenges as all unions do, do these days, and therefore there must be the pressure to concentrate perhaps more on e-learning and less on, on bringing people together. But No, I think what we'd like to do is to actually link the two together so I'll have even more blended learning um, and to develop um, online modules which will support face-to-face -face work um, and then for some follow-up because there's a lot of benefit in the face-to-face -face and we don't ever want to lose that. So I think we need to look at how best we do that blended learning and, and that's where our efforts will be for next year. Wonderful. Gail, thank you very much indeed. Kind welcome. of good run around the, the digital landscape, as, as it were. The Unions 21 report, uh, Becky, that's going to be available? From the 21st of October on the website, www.unions21.org.uk forward slash publications. And you can download it fr from there. And please do download it, have a read, let us know what you think. We'd be very, very interested in your, in, in your views. Um, nearly time for us to go, but... It would be wrong to do so without uh, just giving you the heads up on some Unions 21 events that are coming up. We've got we've got quite a packed agenda between now and kind of Christmas time, really, haven't we? We do. Um, so the first one is a women's network breakfast, closing the pay gap. So a really interesting discussion with colleagues from ACAS around how unions can use data to um, address pay disparity in the workplace. That's, that's going to be a women's network breakfast, so... Uh, any um, anybody who identifies as a woman is able to attend that event and if that goes quite well I'm very tempted to make that into a fuller masterclass open to everybody so mm -hmm. that we can think mm -hmm. of it coming back to the discussions we had at the beginning of the podcast that is on the 31st of October um, at 9 o'clock in the morning then on the 15th of November we have a masterclass on navigating the new political terrain so that is going to be looking at who the runners and riders are for all the different political groups, what their interests are, how best to approach them. So if you're doing any kind of parliamentary work or public affairs work for a union, or if you're just interested to know the gossip... Uh, gossip, then, yeah. Apparently there will be gossip. Uh, please do come along. That's going to be on the 15th of November, 9.30, over at the Palace of Westminster. Uh, and then on the 30th of November, we have at 9.30 as well, we've got the launch of our Brexit toolkit for Very unions. Important, yeah. Really important. A great piece of work. I've already caught sight of the first round of the, of the work from that. And I have to say, if... You in any form of if you're in any form of planning in terms of uh, a union, or uh, from the kind of you know industrial side, comm side, general organisational side, I think this is going to give you some real pause for thought and some really interesting examples of of what we're going to need to think about internally uh, around Brexit and kind of how unions are already starting to navigate. And does, does it offer, not, not if not a template, then almost like a checklist of things you really need to start thinking about to, to, 
kind of survive this yep. process. There, what we've got in there is some explanation of the different areas that you need to be thinking about, uh, uh, some questions you need to be asking your union and looking at your union strategy around. It's also got some really interesting case studies from unions who are undertaking some Brexit-proofing work themselves. And we've also got some information from some of the union's 21 stakeholder uh, supporters around the kind of stuff that they can help unions do around that particular issue. Wow, a busy period of time, busy period of time. Well, listeners, thanks ever so much for your company uh, over the course of this podcast. We hope you found it enjoyable and interesting and stimulating. And if you do, uh, if you've got anything you want us to think about, any comments, any feedback, please do email us at info at unions21.org.uk. We really do want your views. We'd love you to join the discussion. Uh, we'll be back in a couple of weeks or so with our next podcast we hope the podcasts are now available from iTunes you may have downloaded this from iTunes so um, don't just keep it to yourself tell your friends as as well tell your friends say say how lovely it is give us a nice rating on iTunes we want, we want, we want four stars or even five, if possible, please, guys. Um, so, yeah, yeah, we're happy with four stars. We'll take four stars. So, the website address, just, just once again, so you've got it at the front of your head, is www.unions21.org.uk. You can find out about what we're doing. You can download our documents. You can read the blog, uh, and and access the podcast there. Uh, and we look forward to having your company either at events or online at some stage in the future so until the next time see you soon thanks very much this is me Simon Sapper saying thanks for listening and goodbye podcast was presented by Simon Sapper and Becky Wright. It was a Makes You Think production and was sponsored by Pellacraft.